The Crossing Gate podcast would like to thank all of those who attended the Thousand Lakes Region Convention in the Twin Cities. The entire crew had a hand in running this convention. We want to do a special shout out to Mr. Alex Mantle. Alex flew all the way from Wyoming to the Twin Cities just because he heard about all the fun on our podcast. We are glad you could visit layouts and make new friends. It was great to meet you, and we are looking forward to your next visit. Maybe we can coax you onto an episode to tell us what it is like model railroading in the Cowboy State. And there was Mr. Binnish chiming in. I think he is talking. Yeah. And, and like the real world, no one's listening. You have 450 resin cars left to build. I, it makes me want to pick up a paper punch and start making holes in things. Well, don't get excited there. Well, we don't have the space to let cars sit. Like for me now, one day is four operating sessions. I can't have a car sitting there waiting four sessions. Yeah, if you miss it, it's eight sessions. You're listening to The Crossing Gate the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division of the National Model Railroad Association. The topics and discussions are about the world's greatest hobby, model railroading. Here are your hosts, Thomas Gazier and Ken Zeska. This episode of The Crossing Gate is brought to you by the Model Railroad Matrix. The Model Railroad Matrix is here to offer you either the red pill or the blue pill, usually presented by some guy named Morpheus. Or in model railroading, it will be more like Eric Smith from the OpSig magazine or Joe Binish. Yes, you will choose between the blue pill and continue to enjoy the hobby as you know it. A nice 4 by 8 foot layout, a couple of loops, maybe even a gazebo in the small town, and a spur to gruesome casket. Yes, keep model railroading fun as the first day you brought home that train. But the model railroad matrix will also offer the red pill. The red pill will open your eyes to the world of operations. Yes, it will make you try to change your fun layout into the exact replica of Ackley, Iowa, when the Minneapolis and St. Louis Railroad rule the world. You will be using all of your time doing research, building detailed resin car kits, scratch building depots from faded plans, and sending email after email to all the manufacturers asking them why they won't produce a correct Chicago and Eastern Illinois 280 in the H4F class. Come on, you will find information, or as Mike Jordan says, little snippets of information that make you go down the rabbit hole of how to accurately replicate how operations is. Yes, the rabbit holes. So think twice when being offered these pills. There is no turning back. Now, Go enjoy your search for that Sanborn map. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of the Crossing Gate Podcast. I'm your host tonight, William Sampson, or you can call me whatever you may, even a a curmudgeon, but I've got a great group of curmudgeons that are already with us here tonight. I am joined by Joe Binish, Dave Hamilton, Mike Jordan, and Rich Ramirez. We're going to actually kind of dive into uh, the operations and actually the evolution of operations 
this cast of characters has operated at, I would easily say, well over 100 railroads uh, collectively. So the knowledge that's had here is immense. Uh, I myself haven't operated nearly as much being a younger modeler, but the experience that we're going to kind of look at is going to be kind of about the evolution of the actual operations themselves. The topics and situations that we look at as modelers, I think often can be intimidating as far as what can we do to improve our operations? If you go to an operator's house that has operated a lot and you're not familiar with it, you might be a little bit intimidated and not sure exactly what to do. You don't want to make a mistake, um, but we're going to actually push past that just a little bit. And the first thing that we'll kind of look at here is going to be looking at kind of that transition. Do you guys look back at some of the early operating sessions and see that that scheduled system that was running a high volume of trains? It might have been 27 trains need to be ran from 7 p.m. until 11 p.m. And then nowadays we're starting to see a little less and a little bit slower pace. Is, is there anything that you guys have seen kind of over time that has brought that transition from the idea of running a, a true schedule and having to fit a bunch of trains in down to something that's a little bit more manageable? Joe, I know you've covered a lot of ground and operate a lot of railroads. Have you ever seen that transition from high volume trains down to low volume? Uh, yes. Um, and I'm going to pick on Rich because we slowed his clock down from two to one or four to one, I'm sorry, to two to one. And as the guy who sits in the yardmaster chair most of the time, it has made it a lot more relaxing and a lot more able to get the work done. Uh, when we started out operating his railroad in 1999, we were trying to get all those trains in and this is the way the real railroad did it and all that kind of thing. And wow, we were sweating. And now we've gone back to two to one and there's, it's leisurely. You can have a conversation. The yard guys have a chance to get their work done the dispatcher and the operator have a chance to write orders and it's just a lot more enjoyable. Well, I'll I'll add a little to that and somewhat disagree with Joe on some of it. I agree. It's better at the two to one, but when I started, it was actually eight to one, the first sessions at eight to one in a three hour session, we ran the entire day, but in some ways it didn't matter because how many trains you run. When I first started, I had very little staging. So we only ran about, you know, we ran about eight trains You'd run the, each of the passenger trains once, the three passenger trains, and you'd run a few freight trains. It really has to do with how much work you create. We went to four to one when we got more a little more staging in and started running, and I had room for more trains. Then we went to three to one. At two to one, we're still running about the same number of trains each session. The thing that's probably made a bigger change is now that there's more staging, some of the trains don't stop in the yard. The yard has more time because it's not servicing things like grain extras and other trains, whereas initially every single train went to, to the yard. Now, Rich, let me have you expand a little bit more on that that pace. You went eight to one, four to one to two to one. The compression that's happening within a yard, a yard is one to one all the time. You don't have the opportunity unless the guy's really throttling back and forth to move the cars are you running a lot of through freights or what are you doing with that time when you went from eight to four to two um, to be able to kind of allow that yard guy a little bit, a little less pressure? The basic thing is if you look at now, we run you know, pretty close to the same amount of training session. When I first started and was running eight to one, you still only had one local go out that needed to be made up. You had a couple switch jobs. Now, because the layout's larger, there's more staging. There's actually four locals that run. So what is eight to one? Eight to one is three hours for a 24-hour session. 
Okay. And then again, at that time, though, remember, I had very little, you know, and you were there. Mike's actually number seven on my seniority list. He was at the first session. When we started, only half the yard was in. We only had, you know, about eight tracks of staging. So there weren't that many trains to run. So then if you're running six to one, that's four hours in a 24. Yeah. So when we went to four to one, a three-hour session was 12 hours. So it took two sessions to simulate a whole day. Well, so this is interesting, though. So then now you said that you have four locals then, or, or multiple locals because obviously you wouldn't have a 24-hour running local. Did you shorten those trains? No, but again, when the layout was young, there weren't that many industries. I didn't have that many cars. My layout has developed. And by the way, we're about on Monday night will be session number 96, but it's been running for 20 years. As the layouts developed, as there becomes more staging, more towns. I mean, for instance, uh, now we run a local on the line, the Osseo line running from St. Cloud to Minneapolis. That didn't exist. It used to leave St. Cloud going to Minneapolis, go right into staging. Now there's a, a local that works the towns there and another job, the Tileston Mill job that just serves one industrial area south of St. Cloud. Ten years ago, those places didn't exist. Well, so this is great. I like the fact that now you're, as your railroad is expanding, as that has evolved, you're actually gaining jobs and you're building the Monty Sub. And now that has become a separate job. How much of that are you pre-staging and having set before a session? Or is the Yardmaster having to build those trains to get them out of the yard? The Yardmaster's building the trains. But now you look at it, we, we went four to one, then we went three to one. And the last year and a half or so, I've been trying two to, basically since COVID, I've been trying two to one. And so now at two to one, in a three-hour session, we only get six hours of a day in. It takes four sessions to cover the 24-hour day. I like that, though. I mean, do you do you see, then, Mike, you did, you obviously operate with Rich. Um, I'm looking forward to an opportunity to be able to run because I hear great things about Rich's Railroad. It is evolving with time, right? And Mike, to be able to pivot to you, and you have operated on it, have you seen it from those uh, those time pace changes, or does the operation still kind of remain, for the most part, the same? And I don't know, are you working in a yard, or are you actually taking a switch job? Uh, I think that the best thing that happened is Rich started the railroad a little bit more compact and kind of worked out all the bugs. And then once he had a nice theme and a smooth running railroad, then he could start adding more operations, which was, I guess, more in bigger towns. You've, you've added on different districts. So these things cr increase the number of trains, frequency of trains, and uh, locals, just like Rich said. So it evolved, and I think that's the best word in this session is uh, evolution. He didn't start out with 27 trains. He didn't start out with 14 operators. It slowly evolved as he developed his operation session. So it's cool to hear that because I know, Rich, you've shared just kind of uh, how your railroad had progressed and how you've gotten into it. And I think a lot of times people envision these railroads that they step into that are operating and go, well, they must have started here, right? This is this is where Rich started. He started running all these trains. He built all this stuff first. But it's cool to see that you're actually growing into it. Now, Dave, I know you've got a you've got a large capacity on the CB and Q of a railroad itself in terms of volume of trains you can run. 
I know you have a lot of stuff already pre-staged, um, but what brought you through that level and brought you down that road to be able to kind of get yourself to the point of obviously where you are today? Where did you start? You know, it, it was pretty much a, a little different because number one, I don't use a schedule. You know, I've always just done a sequence of trains so that, you know, as far as the trains that feed the main freight yard, you know, the lacrosse yard, we run an eastbound train and a westbound train and an eastbound train and a westbound train. And that keeps the yard busy. And those trains also are providing cars for the couple locals that originate in lacrosse. And I've always pre-staged the train for like Prairie du Chien. So that way, as soon as everybody gets in the basement or the train cave or whatever, we're gonna, I can have a few people working right away. I don't have to wait, you know, for a train to be made up. So in this case, Dave, you're looking at actually more of the actual evolution being the actual movement of trains. And you added to that that allotment oh, yeah. and then decided, hey, I want to run an empire builder. You, did you just shoehorn that in somewhere along yep. that series of events? Well, what's ended up happening is that, you know, I'm kind of limited to how much staging space I have. So at one point in time, I always had three westbound trains and three eastbound trains ready to go. And since I can't really add any more staging tracks, and I decided I'm going to run some passenger trains, I've basically eliminated one train in each direction and replaced them with a passenger train in each direction. And it turns out, you know, two and a half or three hours that we operate, it's working out fine. And it might be just because the crew that I use most of the time is getting old and cranky and they can't work any faster. You know, that might be part of the problem, but... You know, with, the, with what I have in staging, you know, we never have any problem filling the session and making it last. Usually they're two and a half, but they can go to three and a half hours. I have added a couple jobs because, as you guys know, I, I keep finding space to, you know, add a lacrosse Milwaukee Road or add a mythical town Winona. Or, you know, I created another switching job, you know, that you know a turn that goes out and back. So I, you know, I've kind of created some stuff over time, but there, you know, that, that was more because the space was there, so I might as well fill it up with something. And those are all, those jobs can be pretty independent. You know, they, they exist and they get fed by the mainline trains that stop in the cross. All my, all the stuff that the, the east and westbound trains get worked as they go through the cross because that's a crew change point, and, and it's also, uh, you know, everybody that goes through there gets worked there. And it's an interesting thought that Rich said, that you know, if I did have a little more staging, and I'm thinking of a way I can do that, it might be interesting to run a grain extra or something and just have them blow right through the yard and that, you know, not stop to have any switching done. Well, I guess I do that with a coal train now, so, you know, it would be easy enough to add another train or two. But again, because I'm not using a schedule, it kind of makes me real flexible. You know, well, and that's so. one thing that, I mean, not having a schedule versus having a schedule, clearly, I think it's 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 nice to define the time span that's taking place, whether it's the eight hours, and that's going to be that chunk of time that you yeah. know, you know, maybe the Empire Builder is not going to be running, you know, in a midday scenario, because it's going to either be in the morning or it's going to be at night. But yeah. then when you start to look at, even in Dave's case, on his railroad, you've got the two different jobs that... Winona's kind of on its own. You can go basically yeah. go down that rabbit hole and spend the entire session in there, as oh, well yeah. as, you know, Joe has the alleys. 
you've got different elements that come into play. Now, when you guys have those little areas that branch out, now, Rich, you mentioned the Monty sub. Uh, Joe, you've got the alleys. Dave, I know you've got the Milwaukee Road. Mike, you've got your little switching diorama that's off on the side that's um, just down at the bottom of your steps. Each of those little elements are pieces that I think we can have an operator and know that they're going to occupy their time. I find that it becomes a favorite thing to do. It's I want to take that job because it's a fun job because I go off and do my own thing. Now, when we look at those areas, let's talk just briefly about the evolution of our track work or track plans. Um, Rich, you touched on on Joe Benish's about his alleys. You helped him do the track work. Can you just briefly touch on, if people think of just a switching area, how you approached Joe's alleys? And Joe, you can even jump in with Rich in, in regards to kind of how that all kind of came together. I, I let the prototype do the work. Joe, or actually I think Doug Complin had the drawings initially. And so Joe had drawings of two of the alleys. And I just literally took what was on the drawings and laid it out. So the industry tracks are just the way the prototype did. You figure that if the prototype was switching it every day, you know, they didn't create switching puzzles on purpose, but it wasn't necessarily easy because of the track that you need to fit in between the buildings. And so I just literally, I did the same thing I did in my layout, which is all of the towns are just copies of what the prototype had. So your spur direction, your switch direction is to the prototype going up the Monty sub. You've got them set up every, the same every, way they every, did every industry spot in all of the towns there, except for St. Cloud. St. Cloud, I didn't have enough room. St. Cloud's about 75 feet long. And I didn't have room for everything. But every other town has all of the trackage, all of the industries that the prototype did in and from a from a beneficial standpoint, Rich will let you answer it first, and then Joe, how much track work have you changed since you laid track by going out that night? I've relayed out my yard three times, just because uh, it actually I found out it helped. The first time I relayed it, um, I found better diagrams. I didn't have good information at first, and there were some extra tracks there, which once we started operating made a lot of sense. It ran a lot smoother. I, I did it one more time because I needed more tracks, and I put my tracks in narrower. I had a town cold spring where I added a siding I learned about. Then I found out the siding wasn't put in till after my model period, so I took it back out. We'll get to Mike and Joe in here in just a second. I just is too interesting on relaying your yard three times. This is not something the average modeler will want to hear or want to do, but it did benefit you because you gained extra trackage. But also talk to us about your track spacing. And I know that I've talked to you in the past about it, but elaborate just a little bit on how far apart your tracks are versus what most people do. A lot of times two inches on. Yeah, mine are by going to and actually the prototype was like 12, 13 feet. And that's what I did. It's about one and three quarters, slightly less. So, yeah, you can't necessarily get your fingers in to re-rail a car, but you shouldn't need to. And again, so we can't read the car numbers. Well, in a real yard, nobody looked for cars in the middle of a cut. You look, you know, when you're switching cars, you've got that cut pulled out and you should have a list of what's on each track. To me, it made a big difference because it allowed the track to go from seven tracks to eight. And Joe is my yard master. We need, you know, we need that trackage. And touch on that a little bit, Joe, from a, a usage standpoint, and as Rich said, the readability, you shouldn't have to be trying to cherry pick and look through cars. Efficiency-wise, I think yards are a tough thing to try to kind of manage or wrangle. Uh, and Mike, you can jump in too, because I know you take St. Paul 
uh, on a railroad that we're very familiar with. And it's a complicated little switching puzzle. But Joel, first, uh, just touch base on Rich's uh, application and kind of how the tracks were. And that additional track, what did it gain you? So Rich models the Great Northern in St. Cloud in 1956. And so track or cars came or trains came from four different directions. And so you needed to be able to have the locals go out from one end of the yard and the through trains have cuts to go out from the other end. And, you know, they operated it a certain way and we were trying to replicate that. So that extra track is invaluable because it allows us to have, you know, eight different cuts for each end. So that's 16 cuts of cars plus a main line plus a runaround track. And so there's all kinds of room to be able to move the cars around and, and for the switcher. And now with the more time uh, going to two to one, it allows the, the crews to be able to think through what their moves are. And they're not just cherry picking. Like you said, they're, they're moving whole groups of cars you know, at a realistic speed and, and with a purpose rather than just running stuff around and hoping that they get the, the right work done. And, and, if, and I think for Joe, I think when we were at three to one, that's when probably some of the issues came in. When we first started three to one was fine. But then when I started, we added on more to the layout. We created more work. Now we had train 502, the one that ran down the Osseo line that that had to be built. Now we've added some other areas and in other industries and so now, as we added trains, it got to be too much. It was too hard for the yard to keep up everything. So whereas now you have the same number of trains, but you spread it across four sessions, same number of local jobs, it gives the yard a better a chance to do a better job. And I think that's a, a really good point right there, Rich, is the fact that you didn't expect all of the, the jobs that get applied and it creates pressure on the yard master or the yard master, even guys switching the yard um, to be able to alleviate that. You just from a, an owner's standpoint, do you see that as, you know, are your operators, not that they didn't enjoy themselves maybe when they're under the gun, but do you see it as a little bit more of a, a relaxed atmosphere? Well, I, 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 you see it in how how well the railroad operates. No one has fun when there's four trains all waiting to get into a yard because sure. that the yard fell behind, you know, it's really controls the operations. Cause, cause we're in St. Cloud, their tracks came like Joe said for four directions. So if the yard gets plugged up, you're stopping traffic coming and going from four directions and kind of bring, can bring the layout to a halt. Well, I'm going to pivot speaking on going to a halt. I know Mike, there are times when we've operated on the Arkwood and Rice Creek, and when we have the opportunity to run there, you're very often selected as the St. Paul Yard guy. And for anybody that doesn't know that particular railroad, it um, it can be a, a high-intensity position. It's not something that if you're a new guy that you're going to jump in there. Can you elaborate just slightly, Mike, in regards to why is that type of position one that takes an experienced operator to jump in there versus a greenhorn that just says, I'm going to give it a go? I think it's uh, the same on most railroads, certain positions that can bring a railroad to its knees. And so if you want a smooth running session, uh, you want to put an experienced operator in those critical spots. And so just like Joe is the yard master on Rich's railroad, He's got a feel for the railroad. He doesn't have to read and think. He already knows how the flow is supposed to go. And 
this is something that Rich has picked up on is, is that you're, you don't start where you're at. You slowly work to that position. So you want to uh, learn the basics of railroading and then add these nuances to it. And so then that takes some time. And I like listening to Joe and Rich talk about the same thing from two different sides because uh, they're both learning how to run the railroad and how to make these improvements. Just like it's terrifying. You ripped out a working yard and added an, uh, another track, but you learned through your study of how the railroad worked this is really going to help the operations. So you're involving your knowledge and you're involving how to operate a railroad, both prototypically and to create uh, fun for your operators. And see, that's where I think it's really interesting. And I know what I think is most fascinating about that, and you're right, Mike, and the fact that he redid it once, but then to actually go back into it again and say, I can still improve it. There's not a point where... You just decide, I lay it once, the yard is done, and now I'm moving on. So, I mean, it takes it takes at least a, a foresight to be able to see what can I gain, is, is it beneficial enough? And then when we look at actually running, you know, passenger trains and first-class traffic uh, and stuff like that on our railroads, Dave, I'm going to slide to you just briefly. If you'd elaborate even a little bit, when you run passenger service, I know you're going series of events, and for all you guys that run passenger, because I know, Joe, you do as well, and Rich, you've got it as well. How do you guys treat those first-class trains? I mean, do you prioritize them? Do you make it very clear? Or, Dave, do you just say, oh, Empire Builder's running, just let her buck at any time, and then guys are just jumping out of the way because they know it's coming? So you're really kind of, and this question is just based on series of events versus a schedule. And and a a passenger train, obviously, is running on a schedule. Um, But, Dave, I'll let you open up real quick with that. It's it's still pretty new on my railroad, so... What I've been doing is like, you know, after the first two trains have run, the first two east-west trains, and remember all the locals are out doing their thing in the meantime, but, you know, the, just to have a little different view, you know, I'll have my mainline guy run either the, you know, the past, either the Twin Cities effort or the past, you know, the Empire Builder. And I, again, it's in the early stages, you know, and, I haven't decided how I'm going to do that time-wise or schedule-wise. But when it is running, because the railroad is double-tracked, other than two points where it pinches down to single track, you know, when the, when the passenger trains are out, there's nobody ahead of them. But the beauty of that, in a way, Dave, is you can, for you in a series of events, and we know that a passenger train, in your case, you could run it every session. Oh, for You could sure. run it every other. So you have that flexibility, right? Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, and then going to either Joe or Rich, either one of you want to jump on it. When you handle any passenger or we'll even just say first class, um, it might be male. When you guys are working with that, how is it integrated within your session? And how do guys know that, hey, that's a hot freight. I got to get out of the way. Rich, go ahead. Well, I run the GN schedule. They ran in the 50s. So I have eight passenger trains coming through. There's a timetable that is based on the prototype and all the trains are there. So everyone knows when the trains will be coming. 
They're first class trains. It's their job. To st- I mean, it adds to the operations. It's their job to make sure they're out of the way. And it's interesting watching people and you see who pays attention to the timetable and who doesn't. But, it, you know, that's there isn't a lot of other work. I don't have a major terminal. There's a lot of switching. But there is one interesting train, 29 and 30, used to run from the Twin Cities up to Grand Forks. By 56, when they had the Red River, they shortened the train to run St. Cloud to Grand Forks. So a series of cars would be hauled to St. Cloud. Then they'd create this little local that basically served all the small towns heading up to Grand Forks. Um, It would come back and the cars would get put on at the back end of the Western Star and hauled back to the Twin Cities. So we bring up cars on the Winnipeg Limited. They get dropped off. We create this train and then it goes off and does its own thing. Now we're trying to expand the operations because Don McLaughlin's modeling a section of that line farther down. And one of the cars that gets put on that train was dropped off at Sox Center and it ran up to Cass Lake. So now we'll be adding that operation to Don's layout where the car that goes on 29 and 30 on my layout, you know, he will be simulating that same traffic on his where it gets dropped off at Sox Center and he puts it on his little train that heads up to Cass Lake and then on to Bemidji. See, that's a cool little touch. I do like the fact that, I mean, another modeler is seeing something that you're doing and then they're saying, hey, I'm going to adopt that as well and spin it over and put it on my railroad. So, I mean, in a way, the worlds are expanding beyond the rails that you physically have even in your own basement. Yeah, and for for both Don and I, the research is half the fun, understanding how the trains ran, where they went. You know, there's they, they dropped off four express cars, but ends up each of these mailed express cars was for a different town. One would get dropped right, off right. in St. Cloud. One would go to... Sox Center to go farther up, another one on to Barnesville and so forth. So it's learning that and then adding it to the operations. I'm always tweaking the operations because I learn more and I I have just as much fun adjusting the operations to be accurate as I do running it at times. And that's what's cool too, right? I mean, you are evolving as you learn this information. So what you had not known prior is being brought to the table because you have done some research or a fellow modelers pointed something out and you're just tweaking it to get it that much closer to kind of what the prototype would have done. Now, Joe, you had uh, uh, a passenger service that you have on your railroad. How is yours kind of handled when it comes to first class or traffic that gets moved through? Well, it should be by timetable, and I'm hoping by this fall I will have that set up. My entire railroad is yard limits, but nevertheless, the the first class trains will need to have a, a time and everybody else needs to get out of the way. We'll see how that works. Initially, those trains were to keep a certain yardmaster from switching on the main at the yard. So I, we had developed a few trains, but I've added in a mail train. I've added in a, uh, a milk train, which unfortunately my wife won't let me cut through the wall and add the dairy and the, the um, flour mill, but that's a different story. But the, the idea is that to emulate that traffic going through, that helps. that's you know part of the story I want to tell of a busy enough railroad that they justified those passenger trains going to Peoria and to Houston and to Winnipeg so that they're not just in the way, but they do things on the railroad. They drop a sleeper or drop an express reefer, that kind of thing. But that's also, that's part of that story. I mean, we've talked about the story in the past in terms of kind of how you're telling your story on your railroad, but as you're kind of advancing in, in the case of, I'm just going to refer to them as Joe's grenade passenger trains. <laughs> if you're on the main, there could be one coming that's, right. that's going to blast you out of the way. Exactly. 
But when we, we pivot just a little bit off of the passenger trains and actually look at, I know we've talked just briefly, um, Rich men- mentioned that he has the Monty sub, so that's a local that goes out. When you guys are dealing with the transfers or whether it's locals, bringing that into your railroad, it also brings in other railroads. I mean, how a transfer is handled, some guys might use just a siding that cars get dropped off and then they get picked up. If there's a way to kind of look at it, are there any unique ways that you guys incorporate how, whether it's a local or you have a transfer uh, taking place on your railroad, is there anything else? I'll start with Dave, because I know you do have a couple of uh, transfers that take place. How do you kind of handle them? Right. I run a transfer, a live transfer from the Burlington Railroad to the Milwaukee Road. I do the same thing with the, you know, the, the branch that goes into Winona. And I, you know, I, I even have a like a Green Bay and Western transfer that every other session will run that one from the yard or from my staging yard to Winona. So they're, they're actual live transfers where locomotive goes out with the cars and comes back with other cars. They're not just set out on a siding someplace. And it's pretty easy when I'm doing the staging. You know, I just decide X amount of cars are going to go to this railroad or that railroad, and I put a tag on the car cards so the yard master knows how to route them. And um, it's just a random amount of cars that get transferred and during any given session. So, so when somebody sees your yards then, Dave, are they looking and if they're seeing Milwaukee Road cars or Sioux Line cars, are they starting to look and say, that car is going to the transfer. That car yep. is going to the transfer. Oh, yeah, I know a lot it. of times in yards, we can see strings of cars and basically look at it and say, that's where that's going. Is, is that how you handle the, those off-road or non-CBQ cars? Yep, exactly. They're, you know, I, Again, I have some colored paper tags, like little mini waybills that I put in over the regular waybill. And, and they just show up randomly. You know, and it's a it's it's worked pretty well, you know, in the so far. It's the same thing, for instance, in the Milwaukee Road section of lacrosse. During any given session, you know, there might be three or four cars that end up going back over to the Burlington. So, you know, it's it, it's a totally random headcount, as far as I'm concerned. And it all happens when I restage the train, you know, because I I, I sometimes I'll swap the waybills around so. You know, I'm not necessarily using four steps of a four-piece waybill. You know, I I figured that the guys that are going to do the job the next time didn't do it the last time, so they don't really know that this car should be going this way or this car should be going that way. You know, I, 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 it's my randomizer. It's like my geography vendor, you know. So nobody, <laughs> you better get some royalties off of those days. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's all monopoly money anyway. So, but yeah, so that I, it's worked out real well, you know, to have a live interchange like that during the sessions. I've been doing that forever. I thought, you know, as long as we've been operating, there's been a certain degree of that going on. No, let me ask you on this. I'll let Dave answer it, and then we'll slide to Mike. Is is do your transfers are they a scheduled job, or are they a part of a job that another guy is running, or is it part of a job within? In the case of like lacrosse, is is that crew the one that is responsible, or do you assign a guy specifically to that one transfer? Originally, when we, you know, I can remember years ago, it was actually called out as a separate job, but we don't do it that way anymore. You know, it's just when there's enough cars built up 
to run a transfer to the Milwaukee Road in lacrosse. You know, we, we run it. Usually the uh, guy that's doing the Milwaukee Road switching has also accumulated some cars to go back to the Burlington. And we just run it. You know, he, he takes, theoretically, you know, six months of the year, he would do the work. The other six months of the year, the Burlington Yardmaster would probably have his city job engineer do the work. You know, so it's, you know, it's kind of like a capacitor building up a charge. When there's enough of a charge built up, we run those cars in and out of the other yards. And it, so it's random, and it seems to work pretty well. So, because, again, it could be three cars, it could be seven cars, it could be, we've had sessions where no cars get transferred between the railroads. So but it's interesting to hear the fact that you, you evolved from having a separate job, and I think a lot yeah. of times we can think to ourselves, oh, they all have to be ran by a crew. The crew has no. to take train 97 or train 98, and you decided, no, well, it's the Milwaukee Road crew, so the Milwaukee Road crew that's working in lacrosse, they're, they're going to be the ones that drag the transfer over there. No, Mike, for you, on yours, when you deal with the actual handling of your transfers, is it in a similar light? Is that the same type of thing? You're just you're running a train out of staging and then hooking it back into staging and you're not having anything happening online? I model a short line that interchanges with the Southern Pacific. So as the local freights came and went, they would just drop cars for my railroad at the interchange point. And then the branch line would run down, drop cars, and whatever was in the yard for the branch line, they'd take back with them. And the only meat that they really had was uh, in the afternoon, they had a refrigerator uh, consist that would pick up cars as it moved through the Southern Pacific. And so the refrigerator cars had to be in the interchange point by late afternoon. But other than that, when the branch had enough cars to run back to the interchange point, they'd drag them down. And if there were cars there for them, then they would drag those cars back up the branch. Up the branch. So, Mike, do you have any instances where the SP would come in and do they have any work? And, and I'm kind of comparing this maybe to our modern day as the Minnesota commercial or the former Minnesota transfer that those guys used to have cars that could be dropped off. And then the, the transfer dealt with it. Do you have any stuff or any work or any of you guys, do you have any work that that transfer comes in and they're like, no, they actually switch out that particular industry because maybe it's on their trackage or the, however you might have it set up on your railroad. Does the SP do any work on your railroad? Well, the interchange point is a town called Guadalupe and they had an assigned Southern Pacific switcher in that community. So the way freights didn't do any local work. They just dropped and picked up cars. And then the local Southern Pacific switch engine did all the ind industry work. And uh, so that is how they did it in, in the real world. And, and I just adopted that. I don't have the information like Rich and Joe have for, you know, St. Cloud. So it's kind of... I kind of have an idea how they did it, and then I just do it so the railroad runs smoothly. So, 
which which obviously helps from a prototype standpoint. I mean, Rich has made a great point just in a, as he's learned and added information and, and gone along and added that to his railroad. That tells the story, but it also makes it more believable and understanding. Do you find any of you guys, let's just even get a, a number of how many transfers or, you know, off road being your home road. Obviously we've got the great Northern with Rich. Um, we've got uh, Santa Maria with, with Mike. Do you guys have multiple transfers we'll start with Dave and just go around the horn? We'll go Dave over to Rich, Mike, and then Joe. I've seen some paperwork, you know, and I probably from the Burlington route historical society that, Showed that, you know, at some point in time, probably my era, that the, between the Q and the Milwaukee, they transferred 12 or 15 cars a day. And I think that's still pretty much the case. You know, where they, it's, as far as I know, it's just a once a day thing. You know, and that's just on in Lacrosse, Burlington to Milwaukee Road, Milwaukee Road to Burlington. But within an operating session for you, Dave, I know you've got Green Bay and Western. You've got obviously uh, the the Milwaukee Road. How many how many transfers do you have collectively across your series of movements um, to give just listeners an idea of how you can integrate different roads into your system? The, the Green Bay and Western section, you know, in, in Winona, there's right now there's an eight car transfer waiting to be hauled over there. You know, with Green Bay and Western power on it, and some of those cars are going to go to the Burlington and Winona. The rest are going to be for the Green Bay and Western. But the Milwaukee Road thing averages, usually it's like it's five, six, seven cars a session, you know, between the two, between the Burlington and the Milwaukee. And, you know, that's pretty much, you know, I, so you figure in a basic session, you could have, 12 or 15 cars getting transferred between. Okay. So that's, that's not too bad. I mean, when we, when we do pivot away from a transfer, let's say, and going this one to rich is with your local hum one, how many locals or transfers do you run on your system or is on your schedule? And then two, just a rough car capacity that you see the transfers being able to turn over on your railroad. Well, The locals are a whole separate thing. The locals were, in, in the 50s, they would serve all of the towns between major terminals. So I have the local that, you know, because I have trains going in four directions, I have locals going in four directions. The interchange, I, well, I tend to when I get into things pretty complex. And that's what happened with the NP, because you know, on the east side of the river, the NP came through. It was actually a joint GNNP line. And so in the 40s, they built an interchange yard there. So there isn't transfers. There's an interchange yard where both car railroads throughout the day can be dropping off and picking up cars from each other. And so that was going to be kind of a live interchange. Well, it's turned in its own railroad. The NP takes two people to operate. There's seven tracks of staging, and we run a full complement of NP trains, passenger and freight trains, simulating the operations. So a freight train may come through and drop off cars, and then we serve industries. So there is a, a... bunch of industries in East St. Cloud that were served by the NP. And then they had reciprocal switching between the GN and the NP. So there was agreements set in place that the that either railroad could haul cars up to St. Cloud. And then if the customer was on the other railroad, they just turned it over at the interchange yard and the other railroad had to deliver it. So it was reciprocal switching. So regardless of who's 
what trail road served a particular industry, the traffic coming there could be routed by either railroad. So that, that is great, though. I, I think what you're hitting there, Rich, is that interchange element is a whole nother animal in itself, right? I mean, you do you have two crews running your interchange? No, no, no. The NPs, there's two people that run the NP. Okay. And so they're one of one of um, there's a local switcher, and so then as the freight trains drop off and pick up cars, the switcher will anything routed to the GN, the switcher will put into the interchange yard. Then on the GN side, every time they switch East St. Cloud or every time interchange traffic builds up, the yard master will send an interchange run over to the interchange yards to drop off what goes for the NP and then pick up anything for the GN. And because the interchange yard can only hold, I think it's about 10 or 12 cars, you need to do that usually a couple times a session so to keep things moving. Sure, sure. That's a cool element, though. I mean, that shared trackage and then obviously how the interchange works. I mean, for a modeler that's designing a railroad, that's not something that they they really probably think about. They're usually thinking just yards, just transfers, just sidings. But an interchange is definitely a cool element to be able to add. And is that something that you planned into your original scheme? Yeah, I planned all along that there'd be the interchange. And I pretty quickly, I, I guess early on, I ended up deciding that I'd make the NP a live railroad instead of just, you know, an interchange track, bring cars in and off. To, I had enough room to put in, like say, seven tracks of staging and to simulate the other traffic. Um, actually, there's another rare thing I did. Over COVID, I relayed almost all the tracks there and increased the length of the interchange tracks because that was getting a, to be a, a trouble spot where there wasn't enough capacity. So I've added a few industries, which, again, the two-to-one helps because the NP now has several more industries, and the interchange yard is also uh, larger. Joe, just throw if you can piggyback anything on to kind of what Rich was saying. I know that you, from an interchange standpoint, have kind of some cool elements. But is there anything that you can add to kind of what Rich had there? Well, I can, but Rich, this is Rich's first time on the podcast. So he's kind of getting a lot of play, which Tom was telling me that we weren't going to let Rich on until he earned his MMR. So he's finally done that. So Oh, right. So we can allow him on. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know. Rich, you know, we wanted to have you on a long time ago, but without that MMR, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. So congratulations <laughs> earning that. I believe you're what, number 732? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I thought that was it. I think that's what his tattoo said on his arm. <laughs> oh, it was on Far his arm. Far behind, Dave. I didn't realize it was on his arm. Anyway, <laughs> my, inter- my interchange or transfer runs are, um, I have three or four a session. And like the, I uh, have the MNNS come in and do one, and he just comes in, drops, and goes back caboose light. The Great Northern and the NP come in from the other end of the layout, and they come in, drop off cars, and then we have cars routed uh, to the NP or, or the GN simply because Union Yard was such a clearinghouse in uh, the Minneapolis or Minneapolis St. Paul in the Midway area for for all of the railroads in the Twin Cities. And then I have uh, Central Minnesota and MNCNL transfers that run through. So they'll pick up, they'll come into the yard, drop off cars. And for example, if they're a transfer west, they'll take all of the west cars that the yardmaster has accumulated. And that's the main way that those east and west transfers are the main way of getting cars off of the layout, if you will, as, as a staging, you know, into the staging yards. And And really what it is, is the the interchange runs or the transfer runs, that's a universal industry. 
you can send any car you want there and, and, and put any car onto the layout from that interchange or transfer track. Well, so that's an interesting element to be able to have just different portions of your railroad that have almost a, a characteristic of their own. And I think interchanges are one piece that we don't necessarily look at. But if we really dove down even into, again, looking at the evolution of what a, a modeler can do with whether it's a larger industry or a transfer or an interchange, um, just real briefly, Mike, you have the little switching segment that's on your railroad. And I'm going to have you touch on that just briefly. And Joe, I'd like you to even elaborate just a little bit on how you handle the uh, the nine car spots that you have at the industry where you have them designated to go to certain parts of the country based on a map that you're kind of using. But I want to just touch real briefly, we can have areas of our railroad that are kind of unique in their own right. But correct me if I'm wrong on this one, Mike, but was that not the start of your railroad? Was that small section that you had there or did you add that portion on? That was part of the evolutionary process. As I learned more about how uh, refrigerator cars were used and moved, I realized I could create a packing district. So I made a modular on wheels and plugged it into the railroad. So it falls back to the evolution part and it falls back to, you know, the research. As you're operating your railroad, you can either focus on research or people will bring you little snippets of information that make you go down the rabbit hole of how to accurately replicate how operations is. And so to add a couple things to Richard's playtime is that if you are modeling a, an existing railroad and you formulize a date, it makes your research a little easier so that you're not just getting a whole bunch of information. You can narrow down to your level of expertise, I guess. And since we're talking about interchange, I think one thing that hasn't been talked about is car floats. If you had a railroad that had a car float, car floats become the perfect interchange spot for bringing in different types of cars and shipping cars out. And you could have one spot where car floats come in, but you could have a Milwaukee car float. You could have a New Haven car float. You could have a New York Central car float. So now you can collect these cars in your yard. And when that correct car float comes, you can load that up with your interchange. So I think that's a, if you have a small railroad and you want to model a bunch of different railroads, uh, I think a car float operation really opens up the door for multitude of types of cars. And that is that expansion part, right? I mean, yours, you don't leave that thing connected all the time, do you? No, it's on wheels. So when I'm not operating, uh, it rolls back into the train room kind of like a tea cart like a tea cart exactly but it's it's a packing district cart <laughs> but that little element in the it's more of an ensign morgan cart that's probably more suitable 
But to be able to have that little element, I do like the car float idea because that does allow you the opportunity to plug something on that doesn't necessarily have to be staying there the whole time. Now, Joe, I did say I'd like you to elaborate briefly on your expansion or that portion that when you walk into your railroad on the left-hand side, it's not always there, correct? No, that uh, covers up the laundry room or the, the laundry chute. So when we had the four kids at home, they would occasionally throw their laundry down the, the chute and I would have to sort it and wash it and fold it and get it back to them and sometimes put it away. But uh, now that three of our kids have moved out and the one is at college most of the time, I can leave it uh, set up most of the, you know, vast majority of the time. And that's a switching district all to its own. And it's also the mainline connection to the north. So it, it connects to a staging yard that sits behind it against, uh, over my workbench. He's slowly disappearing on us. And before Joe totally disappears, I want to give uh, Rich and Dave the opportunity. Is there any element that you guys find within the hobby, uh, especially from the operations, that you'd say from an evolution of operations that you'd recommend any operator at whatever level it might be? What pushes you guys to take out that yard for a second time and then redo it for that third time. Or, or Dave, in your case, you had S scale in one room. You decided to tear that all out and put in Winona. When you guys are doing these things and thinking about your operations, we're going to go around the horn, but we'll go with, uh, with Dave. Is there anything that you see from an evolution standpoint when it comes to operations that you'd recommend anybody that on the spectrum they do to be able to kind of get themselves to that next phase? Don't let Dave Voss come over your railroad because he plants all kinds of crazy ideas in your head. So I, mean, I think it just it just happens. I mean, you you know you you do things a bunch of times and you finally realize that it hurts, so you quit doing it and you redo it so that it works the correct way. You know that's where it's it always pays not to jump into scenery too quickly, right? Because you don't want to be tearing that stuff up. So you really should run the railroad a few times and and see if, it, if it's working the way you wanted it to, moving traffic the way you wanted it to, you know, and then, and then don't be afraid to tear it up. I think that's the, that's why I took out the S scale. I came to the realization that I couldn't, it was too hard to work on two different railroads, and it was just a natural to turn all that into part of the HO railroad, and I did it. No regrets, and it made perfect sense to do it. And it's worked out quite well since I've, you know, since I've made that changeover. Well, it's interesting to say, too, because I've had the opportunity to run your railroad. And I do like, I did the Milwaukee and then I did the Winona one. But that experience to be able to see that your railroad come to life. But then also over time, because I did see the S scale, but I really am glad Winona's there. That's something that I would love to do again. Um, it, it makes it kind of fun. Now, when it does come to tearing stuff out, Rich, you mentioning your yards taking out, taking them out completely, not once, but twice. What do you see then even just far as jumping into that point of being able to make those type of modifications or edits in your head? Are you making those because you see it on the prototype? Is it your research or what is that element that you'd suggest other modelers to take into consideration when it comes to evolving their operations? It's always, for me, it's always about the end point of trying to, as accurately as reasonably possible, simulate the operations of the Great Northern and Northern Pacific in central Minnesota in 1956. And so as I gain more information, you know, the first time I relayed the yard, I only had some rough drawings of what was there. 
once I got a hold of some actual drawings, again, Dave Voss had them, I realized that, oh, wow, there's a bunch of extra tracks. And we'd run a lot enough that we knew where there were some trouble points and realized, hey, they did this for a reason. And it really helped with operations. Then I added on. I don't, well, some of you guys remember when I started, and again, I had kids, right? What actually started the layout just when our youngest daughter was born. They played, yeah, you remember them, they played underneath. So I only had the upper level then because their grocery store and their kitchen said everything was underneath. <laughs> so Minneapolis and Fargo was one staging yard double-ended that had six tracks. You can only run so many trains, right? A freight train in each direction, a passenger train in each direction, and one local. That limited operations. Well, as they started doing other things, you know, I started expanding, adding more staging. Minneapolis alone is now a 13-track staging yard. Well, as he started adding more trains, realized the yard didn't have the capacity to handle all the different trains. So it got relayed to give more capacity. But it's all, for me, it's been as I, as the railroad grows over time, I'm able to simulate more of the traffic. I've got, like I say, 31 tracks of staging now. So that's not the limit anymore. That used to limit what I could run. Now it's more the equipment. And so as now I've learned that potato season, they used to run trains of empty refrigerator cars through St. Cloud heading to to the Red River Valley and then spud trains coming back. So, you know, that's one of my next goals is to build, build a couple spud trains to run on the layouts. Well, it's, that's, that's interesting. I think where you've nailed this one and uh, it ends up being rich is the, the research is what actually kind of evolves what you're doing. And then in addition to that, as you expand, what I heard you say multiple times was staging. And, and you're looking at areas where you're staging trains and now you're talking about building a spud train. And, and all of that stuff comes with time. And as you expand your railroad, it has evolved over the course of time. And it has, and I would just say it has to be getting more and more refined, I think is probably our, our best word for it. Wouldn't you say, or do you think the staging is a high element, but that history is what pushes yeah, it? You know, all of it. You're, you're limited by a variety of things, but it's the amount of space you have, the size of the crew you can handle, the amount of staging, the amount of equipment. When I started running, I had about 100 freight cars. Joe Binish didn't have a layout and John Brat didn't, so they each brought a bunch of freight cars. Well, then I had to start building them because John started building a layout. You know, but it takes years to build up, and I like detailed equipment to build up a roster. I'm at 450 some cars now and still adding. Nah, it's about 200, 150, 200 resin <laughs> cars. But the, the point is, it took. Try to get a large layout that complete running at once becomes an almost impossible task. But I do like that you're taking your time on this. I mean, it is, you're not just jumping all in and trying to lay all the plywood and all the track at once because you clearly are getting it, refine it, add to it, refine it, add to it. You may even step back and rebuild, refine it. And I think part of that is that exercise that gets you to where you are. I mean, uh, you're on. You're, you had a photo on the cover of one of the well-known magazines, and it doesn't just happen overnight. This is something that you've done for years and have had the opportunity to then, you know, present your work out there because of all of this refinement. I mean, it, it's a, it's almost a an exercise, if well, you will. I've been working on one layout for a long time. Other people build, you know, build something quick, and five years later, they're starting the next one. It's just a, a different approach to the hobby. There's a lot of ways, you know, this hobby's great. There's a lot of different ways of approaching it. Mine is, I in the end, I like things to be very accurate, very detailed. It takes a long time to do that when you're scratch building most of your structures and detailing your equipment. 
But to me, that's the absolutely. Fun part, and I don't care if it takes long and I only build, you know, this one major layout because that's what I enjoy, the research and the building and, and then watching it come alive with a group of operators. Well, I, I do have to congratulate you on being an MMR as well as obviously Dave acquired his just not too long ago. But you guys doing that type of stuff is what elevates as far as your modeling is concerned is through a program like that to be able to learn a lot of those steps and demonstrate that you take those to the next level. Because I've seen Rich's work in person and it is impeccable. If you ever have the opportunity to see any of the the models he's done, the depots he's done, the freight cars he's done, um, master model railroader. He probably really qualified for that 20 years ago. But um, obviously, again, congratulations to you on that, Rich. Uh, it's it's very cool to see and to learn from one another. I, I just like listening to you because I like to be able to learn more information. And to pivot here, we'll go to Mike. Mike, with yours, as far as operation, operations are concerned, I do want to just ask you, you've seen a lot of railroads evolve over time, just working on them, operating, not even just your own. But do you see anything that really stands out that really brought operations from maybe 20 years ago to where it is today and how it has improved and what has refined those things to get better? I think just availability of information and the accessibility of the information has really improved uh, railroading. And I think the I deal an awful lot with Bill Jolitz and because and, he's into refrigeration car movements too. And he calls our interchange of ideas cross-pollution <laughs> instead of cross-pollination. And I think that's what operations does is it brings people into your railroad. You get to go see other railroads. You pick up ideas. You share your knowledge and that helps in making your railroad operate better. I think that is the evolution of the hobby as well as the evolution of everybody's railroad. And that's what makes it fun. I mean, I think reality is is that the camaraderie that we have when we are operating our railroad and seeing it come to life, um, I do like getting down there at track level and looking at the scenes and, and really kind of delving into what it is. But when your operations are working well, it becomes less of, you know, just people are running trains and almost bringing you into a world. And that world gets created and it takes a long time to get to that world. I want to thank you guys for taking the time tonight to be able to talk about the evolution of operation. We're going to close ourselves out by giving ourselves a goodbye. You guys all have yourself a good night and we'll touch base in the near future. Take care. Yep, thanks. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to The Crossing Game, the official podcast of the Twin Cities Division. You can find us on Facebook in our group, the Twin Cities Division of the NMRA. You can email us at tcdnmra at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts. Well, sharing the information, right? I mean, I was going to close. I was trying to close with Rich's MMR goodbye, but then I thought we hadn't closed with Mike and, and we have a blank screen with Joe. And then I left a dead air and I thought, cripes, we got to get down to Mike. So sorry about that, guys. And again, congratulations, Rich.